Uh, good morning, church. Um, I, I wonder, uh, do we have any uh, mountain climbers with us today? Um, maybe not those who have put on harnesses and ropes and special shoes to ascend some perilous peak, but uh, maybe some who've even hiked the foothills or more accessible mountains in our backyard. Uh, many of us have at least driven to the tongue of the Athabasca Glacier in Jasper National Park and ridden one of those giant buses that take the tourists partway up and deposit them directly onto the ice. But buses do not travel the full extent of the glacier. They only go partway up the tongue. They do not travel to its source. So climbing down from the bus on a sunny day, anybody without sunglasses is squinting due to the glare. Surrounding the bus are cones and barriers to corral the crowds and keep you from advancing into danger. Looking far, far up the glacier, you can see in the distance the glacier cresting over the peak of the valley um, that divide Mount Andromeda and Mount Kitchener. And it hints at what lays out of sight just beyond. If you didn't know better, you might think that this valley and the protruding tongue of the glacier was all that there was to see. Um, back in the day, my daughter and I uh, climbed aboard that bus along with a stereotypical group of Japanese tourists. Um, the particular day was defined by Alberta blue and a dazzling bright sun. And while it was a warm day, it was cold on the glacier. Steph was five or six and having freshly watched snow dogs, she served as my glacier guide. Telling me to watch out for crevasses and thin ice, I followed her as we explored the ice sheet. She carefully probed along uh, with her walking stick the small rivulets of Mount Water, um, leading me safely along the way. Um, once we were done with the tour, we hopped back into the Chevy. We made our way south on Highway 93, and a few minutes down the road was a popular hike up Parker Ridge, a three-mile trail that switchbacks its way up through the subalpine forest through beyond the delicate alpine meadows, 880 feet up to a bare windswept lookout. In our slow, careful ascent of the ridge, we won for ourselves the prize of peeling back the curtains and opening the door to the backside of the Athabasca Glacier to behold the full glory of the Columbia Ice Field, all 125 square miles of it. From the top of Parker Ridge, it seemed as if there was no end to the mountain peaks surrounding us. Steph and I were outfitted with sturdy boots and walking sticks. We had some snacks and a bit of water. But by the time we hit the top, it was too cold and too windy to stick around for long. Uh, it seems we were poorly suited to endure this Colombian glory. As we made our way back down, we soon found out that going down took more energy than climbing up. In order to control our descent, we had to resist gravity and watch our footing. Our quads soon grew weak, rubbery, nearly useless. We were out of snacks and water. We were tired. Of course, partway down, Dad was wondering what I'd gotten us into. Um, soon enough, Steph missed her footing on a route and fell down and skinned a knee. Um, thankfully, we were met with the kindness of a stranger who bent down and provided the Band-Aid that was necessary to make everything better for a five-year-old. Tears brushed aside. And encouraged by the stranger's kindness, Steph found the courage to get up and continue on. Eventually, we made it back to our truck, worn out, hungry, and tired. To this day, I think the skin knee is probably Steph's clearest memory of our backcountry adventure. Um, this is the only mountain climbing story I have. Uh, and it bears a few surface similarities to our passage today. A trip up and down a mountain, hidden glory revealed 
and finding ourselves ultimately not only ill-prepared for the journey, but ill-prepared and unsuited to abide in the glory we beheld, and yet meeting with mercy on the way down. So today for our text, we have a story of the revelation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, which just so happens to take place on a hike up a mountain, and just so happens to be a story that's concerned with a hidden glory made plain for a select few to see. And finally, it's a story about falling down on the mountain, being helped up, and the slow descent to a more ordinary elevation. Um, Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So may God bless us today through the hearing of his word and help us to understand it. Please be seated. So like many gospel stories, this is a a quick one. But it's densely packed with significance, both for the disciples who joined Jesus on that day, as well as for us as we follow along with Matthew's retelling of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Tradition holds that the Mount of Transfiguration was on Mount Tabor. Whether this is true or not is probably anybody's guess. But for our purposes today, while Tabor is a possibility, it's not necessarily a good candidate, as it was pretty much continuously occupied and fortified by a variety of armies and occupiers, be they the Greeks, the Romans, or even later, the Crusaders. In a sense, considering the hidden nature of the glory of Christ and of the private setting of this revelation, we can appreciate that maybe a more secluded place might have been the most appropriate for Jesus to reveal his glory as the Son of Man to his inner circle. As Pastor Terry has highlighted previously, mountains and mountaintop experiences have figured prominently in the Bible. As God has made a practice of both meeting his people upon the mountain and revealing his glory there. Whether it be Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, or Moses on Sinai, or Elijah on Mount Carmel, God has revealed himself both in mercy and in power on the high places. For context, as we know, in this season of ministry, Jesus and his disciples have been moving about Galilee, from one side of the lake to the other, up to Tyre and Sidon and back again, through Galilee of the Gentiles, back and forth across the lake several more times, 
eventually catching a breather in Caesarea Philippi, which is where Peter made both his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and where Peter rebuked Jesus for his insistence that the Son of Man was going to Jerusalem to die. It is also the location where Jesus has instructed his disciples in the way of the cross, the way of dying that they might live, and of the future glory of the Son of Man. For us, before we look at the Mount of Transfiguration, we should probably take a minute and ask ourselves about this Son of Man and what the Bible might say about his glory. Son of Man was undoubtedly Jesus' favorite title for himself, and he applies the title based upon other references from the Scripture. For those of you with your Bibles, we can find significant insights if we turn to the book of Daniel chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the record of a troubling and perplexing apocalyptic vision of judgment and of the kingdom at the end of the age. The context is one in which a variety of terrifying beasts representing powerful nations who rage across the face of the earth and make war against the people of God. In the midst of their violence and boasting, Daniel receives a vision of the throne room of God. Beginning in verse 9, it reads, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days holding court for judgment is a contrast to the power of the Babylonian court in his own day, where he served King Nebuchadnezzar as an advisor. The idea of the vision is to frame the glory of God so high and so far above that of the kings of the earth as to make them impotent as dust and their strivings and exercise in futility. Nebuchadnezzar's attendants may have numbered in the hundreds and his court in the thousands, but the glory and the power of the Ancient of Days could not be numbered or equaled by 10,000 10,000s. Babylon and the like roamed the earth like great beasts, making boastful noises about their power and glory while waging war against the people of God. Yet as terrifying and destructive and as boastful as these beasts were, they were as nothing before the Ancient of Days. The river of fire flowing from the holiness of his wrath would consume his enemies in an instant. This throne room scene presents a time of trial and of judgment over the deeds of the beasts. Their boastful mouths would finally be stopped as they received the justice they so richly deserved. As the judgments were in the process of being carried out, a new figure appears on the scene, one like a son of man. Daniel writes in verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here again we have another contrast. And we can see this contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and the divine figure who appears this one like a son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven. While Nebuchadnezzar was convinced of his own authority, glory, and sovereign power, and had even erected a golden statue of himself demanding that his people worship his image, ultimately we know the statue was broken up and melted down. 
his dominion and his peoples passed away. But this one, like a son of man, is ushered into the throne room of the ancient of days, not as an attendant, not as a courtier, not as a subject, but as a prince receiving a kingdom as an inheritance from his father. His majestic and glorious arrival before the throne is highlighted by his majestic and glorious mode of transportation coming on the clouds of heaven. We know this is no ordinary son of man. His origin is similarly ancient. He is a man of heaven. It is this son of man who inherits the covenant that God made with David, that one of his offspring would sit on the throne of a kingdom without end. Along with this throne, the son of man receives authority, glory, and sovereign power, as well as the worship of the nations. For the nations would be gathered into the kingdom. Of the ancient of days, it is said that he neither shares his glory with another or his praise with idols. And this tells us that this figure must be a son and therefore worthy of worship. Authority, glory, sovereign power, worship. These are given to the Son of Man as his birthright, as his inheritance, and this inheritance is the kingdom and its people. Simon Peter, in a moment of inspiration, revealed by the Father, at last understood the connection. The Son of Man is the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. The kingdom is his inheritance. Simon Peter and the other disciples had been walking with the Son of Man for some time. They had witnessed his authority, his power, and they had offered him their worship. And now they would behold his glory. But there was a problem. The glorious Son of Man was walking to Jerusalem to die. And Jesus had bid his disciples to come and do likewise. As we know, this was too much for Peter. How could the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel be put to death? Would he not rather put to death the enemies of his kingdom? Should they not rather be consumed by the throne of fire? Would his reign not be established now, both now and forever? In this objection, Peter, said Jesus, was possessed by human concerns and not the concerns of God. He was thinking of the kingdom merely from a human perspective. And we will find, as Michael observed last week, that the enemy of God's people is not merely out there, uh, rather it's in here. It's inside all of us. And what we will find is that the greatest enemies of God's people are sin and death. And that in Christ, God would judge these enemies in a way that would gather the nations in, even as sin and death are defeated. Christ, through the cross, would lead the nations into the kingdom, and his apostles would hold the keys to unlock the door. But they were instructed not not to speak of these things openly yet. For the time being, the glory of God and the Son of Man would be hidden and seen only in and through the cross. However, Jesus affirms that even though the way of the cross is death, even though the way of the cross is shame, it is through shame and death that Christ will lead many into life and glory. Of this future glory, there is yet a future revelation to come. As Jesus hints at towards the end of Matthew 16 and verse 27 and 28, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some are standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some of us here might be confused by this statement, as if our reward in heaven depended on the number of items that we've checked off our religious to-do list while we're here on earth. But the point of this passage is that the rewards of the kingdom 
will be poured out upon those who have disinherited themselves from any earthly inheritance and who instead have exchanged it for the hope of an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. It's an inheritance that, as Peter puts it, is kept in heaven for you. Glory in Christ in the age to come. Follow Jesus to Jerusalem now. Bear the shame of the cross now. Yet in doing so, enter into and take possession of the life in the age to come. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is a striking statement. Six days later, Matthew says, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John up the mountain to witness this hidden glory of the Son of Man. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Um, We really have no way to approximate this event from our everyday world. It's written in our ancient creeds that Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. And this, in part, is the lesson of the transfiguration. We understand from the story that transfigured means transformed, but not so much transformed from one thing to another, but from one degree of glory to another. Created in the image of God, a human being is a, glorified, is a glorious thing, but it's not yet a glorified thing. In the transfiguration, we see the embodiment of the hope of the nations, the nations who assembled around the throne in Daniel's vision, this glorified son of man, Christ Jesus. Peter, James, and John are selected for this special revelation of the glorified Christ. We're not sure why they were selected. It's possible Jesus was especially close with these men. But more than this, we know they were not selected on the basis of their personal perfection. Rather, as flawed and ordinary men, they were being called as eyewitnesses to the glory of Christ. And one day they would be called on to testify to what they had seen and heard. As it is written in the law, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, the truth of a matter will be established. In the transfiguration itself, it was as if the glorious divinity of Christ for a moment refused to be hidden any longer under the veil of his humanity. However, the problem was not incompatibility, as if the two natures of Christ were at war, or as if one nature was more true than the other. Rather, The relatively inglorious incarnation of the Son of Man was a temporary state of affairs. It was an accommodation to fallen humanity that Jesus veiled his glory. So rather than divinity refusing to be contained by humanity, we have in the transfiguration the revelation of divinely glorified humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So in considering the transfiguration, John Calvin observes this. So long as Christ remained in the world bearing the form of a servant, and so long as his majesty was concealed under the weakness of the flesh, nothing had been taken from him, for it was of his own accord that he emptied himself. But now he has drawn aside the veil by which his power had been concealed for a time. The point Calvin's making is that part of Jesus' purpose in this revelation was to demonstrate that nobody was taking his life from him that Jesus in his journey to Jerusalem was laying it down. As John later recorded in chapter 10 of his own gospel, regarding the life of Jesus, Jesus declared, no one takes it from me, 
I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Well, while the transfiguration shows us the human and divine natures of Christ are united in one person, it also shows us the inheritance of the saints in glory. For Moses and Elijah appear with them, and they also bear the marks of glory. While Matthew does not focus on this, Luke makes sure to point out that Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor. The Greek fathers have observed that our Lord's Savior is Lord over life and death. For Moses who died worships him, and Elijah who did not die also worships him. Moses and Elijah are witnesses to Christ through the word and ministry entrusted to them. And they passed on to Israel the hope of the one who was to come. They were imperfect men, at times guilty of anger and fear, but most of all, they were guilty of weak faith. Their presence in glory, despite their sins and weaknesses, is comfort for us all who in Christ alone have assurance of the hope of glory for ourselves. Here on the mountain, Jesus unmistakably reveals his identity as the Son of Man. Thinking back, we can imagine the glory in the face of another deliverer. Moses, who went on the mountain with God, began to radiate with a glorious light. Like an iron poker heated in a fire, Moses shone with the glory of the Lord. However, the heavenly light of Moses' face was a fading glory. Again, like an iron removed from the fire, Moses eventually faded back to normal. Fading though it was, when Moses came down the mountain, the glory remained too much for his fellow Israelites, so he had to wear a veil to conceal what remained. If Moses needed a veil so as not to frighten the people of God, how much more the unfading glory in the face of the Son of Man. The glory faded from the face of Moses in part because the glory was associated with being in the glory presence of God. And Moses did not yet dwell with the Lord permanently. However, as we see in today's passage, Moses now stands in glory with unveiled face, beholding God's glory in the face of Christ. Moses and Elijah are in glory, radiating the glory of God in the perfection of their being. In this story, we're also reminded of the special role that Moses and Elijah played in the history of redemption. Many have observed they represent the testimony of the law and the prophets concerning Jesus. It's interesting to note that here in the glory in the mountain, they were talking with Jesus. But what were they talking about? Luke again makes this clear. They were talking about the new exodus in Christ. As Moses had delivered the people of God out of the bonds of Egypt, Jesus would deliver the people of God from the bondage of sin and death. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Around this point, the entire experience has become too much for Peter and, his, and the disciples. Peter's mind is overwhelmed and he begins to spout nonsense. Maybe he's thinking that if there's a new exodus, they're going to need new shelters. Uh, but it's pretty clear from what happens next that he's missing the point of the conversation. Um, I love the idea of the glory of God descending while Peter was still speaking. Um, either Peter was finishing his suggestion about the shelters while the cloud came upon them, or he continued to babble on for a bit, and while he was speaking, then the cloud descended. Either way, Mark gives us the idea that Peter was speaking because he did not know what to say. So there are certainly appropriate times for speaking, 
But in this case, it might have been better for him to hold his tongue and wait. Um, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, and with them I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. In the Old Testament, the cloud of glory concealed the Shekinah, the dwelling presence of the Lord. The same cloud led Israel in the wilderness. It descended on the Mount of Sinai. It settled upon the tabernacle, and it filled the temple. And it now enveloped the group on the mountain. In the Old Testament, God made many appearances in glory to his people. Yet God had never appeared to them without some concealing form. Even in visions, the image of the Most High is accommodated to human understanding. Be it a burning bush, a voice from a cloud, a figure on a throne. Such modes of communication demonstrate uh, the weightiness and inapproachability even the incomprehensibility of the glory of the ancient of days. If God did not stoop down to human beings, he could not be made known to them. He could not dwell with them. All of these accommodations were preparing humanity for a time when God would fulfill the words, I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will make my dwelling among them. Now in Christ we see God in the flesh, his glory dwelling in a tabernacle of his own making, his glory filling a temple made without human hands. God has become approachable. He stooped down to live among us, to live with us. As John says in his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Clearly, Jesus needed no further tabernacle or shelter to be constructed by Peter, for he was the new tabernacle in his own flesh. From time to time in the Old Testament, the glory cloud fell upon groups of people, but only to punctuate specific, important points in the history of salvation. Yet the fact that God here descends to them in the cloud, that they're standing in glory together, should bring into view the pivotal moment of this final manifestation of the presence of God in the old way. As it's written in the book of Hebrews, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Accordingly, we have the voice from the cloud, the voice of the Father declaring to the disciples, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's as if God were saying, my son is my exact representation. From now on, he is my only word to you. I'm speaking only through him. Listen to him. This is good advice for us all. How many of us have been looking for signs to prove God's pleasure? How many have been holding out for some miracle in order to believe? The simple truth is all too plain. The glory of God is in the face of Christ. Where do we go to discern his will? Where do we go to believe? We go to his word, where his will is made known and his son is revealed. So we've been collecting testimonies on the mountain concerning the divinity of Christ. From Moses and Elijah from the face of Christ itself, and now from the word of the Father, through the glory of the Spirit. And all of these witnesses agree. The Son of Man is the Son of God, Messiah, Christ, Savior of the world. 
Yet when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Why? It's for the same reason that that Israel begged Moses to tell God not to speak to them from the cloud on the mountain anymore. Even though hidden by the cloud, hearing even the voice of God directly was too much for them. The message God spoke from the cloud was not a terrible message, but it was an exposing message. The message left the disciples face down in fear, much like our first parents, hiding in the garden, naked and afraid. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. The word of God needed to come in the person of Christ. Robed in humanity, he is our mediator, our God and our friend, who speaks kindly to us in words that we can bear to hear. We are unprepared for the cloud of glory, and we are unable to stand before the voice and the words out of it. Even the word about the sun is too much. We shut down. Yet Jesus reaches down. He touches us. He soothes us and restores us with words, get up, don't be afraid. He touches his disciples to let them know that he is with them. He speaks kindly to them because he knows he still needs to prepare the way to the Father. In order to save us, God needed to come down to us, even to take on the form of a slave, in order to reach out and touch us with the kindness of his mercy. Calvin puts it this way, Jesus raises them up when they had fallen, and by doing so performs his office. He came down to us for this very purpose, that by his guidance, believers might boldly enter into the presence of God. And that his majesty, which otherwise would swallow up all flesh, might no longer fill them with terror. Nor is it only by his words that he comforts, but also by touching that he encourages them. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the second time now that Jesus has instructed his disciples not to reveal the truth about him until after the resurrection. The story is not a call for us to ascend the mountain with Jesus, nor is it an exhortation to be not like Peter and resolve to stay on the mountaintop by building things for Jesus. We know this because Peter, James, and John were completely unprepared for their time on the mountaintop. Jesus had to reach out and to touch them, to speak kindly to them, to lead them back to where they had started. Peter, James, and John had not failed For the revelation of the mountain had demonstrated to them precisely what they needed to know. The glory of God is found in the face of Christ. Yet this glory is veiled, revealed on the mountain to the three for sure, but more so revealed to all the world and on the the cross as he is lifted up. Be certain, O Christian, that it is God's work in you that is preparing you for glory where one day you too will take your place among the nations gathered to worship at the throne of the Son of Man. In the meantime, we're still unprepared to enter into this glory, yet we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So when you are knocked down because you're not equal to the word of God, know that it is God who is for you in Christ, who stoops down to you and reaches out for you to pick you up and establish you in safety with the words, get up. Do not be afraid. Get up. Do not be afraid. As the disciples walked with Jesus, they would now know that they were already walking in glory as they walked in Christ. Yet this glory was hidden under weakness. 
The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. The disciples are confused As in Daniel's vision, their master is the son of man, the son of God, the Messiah, who would be king over all the earth. His rule would follow great judgment over the enemies of God's people. It was also prophesied by Malachi that Elijah would come as a forerunner preceding the great and terrible day of the Lord, when judgment would fall upon the wicked. And now before their eyes, Elijah had come in glory. In chapter 16, Jesus had just finished talking about coming in his Father's glory with the angels to reward each person for what they had done. And that some in the group would not taste death before they witnessed the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now if Elijah had appeared in glory and some of them would not taste death before Jesus came in his kingdom, what about the kingdom? Would it come now? Did Jesus still have to die? Jesus answers, Elijah surely comes. For Elijah surely came, but they did not recognize him and have done to him everything they wished, and they will do likewise to the Son of Man. Jesus has intentionally placed the references to Daniel's vision before their minds by laying claim to the title Son of Man and the glory of his coming in judgment. Yet he also presents them with the timing and the way of the glory of the kingdom, the way of the cross. And it's upon the cross that the enemies of God's people will be defeated. In Christ, sin is judged and death is overthrown. Sin and death are defeated and the judgment is in the flesh of Christ and the vindication is in his resurrection. It was not yet time for Jesus to return to the right hand of the Father. He still had a mission to accomplish in Jerusalem, nor was it time yet for him to come on the clouds with the angels in glory. At the appointed hour, the Son of Man would inherit all things from his Father in order to share the blessings of his kingdom with his people. He in whom the glory of God was veiled was not dragged unwillingly to his death, but laid down his own life of his own accord to offer the Father the sacrifice of willing obedience. The glory of the Son of Man was revealed in the transfiguration, but he asks us to look to his glory in death and resurrection. Where else is this hidden glory most seen? We see his glory on another mount, when his face is not shining like the sun, when he is crowned with thorns, when he is bleeding, when over him is a sign that reads, here is your king. Here God is at work establishing Christ's kingdom. The kingdom is coming, established in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The mountain is merely a prelude of what is yet to come. From what follows next, It shows that what happened on the mountain did not fill the disciples with confidence. The next time Jesus speaks of death and resurrection in Matthew 17, 22, the disciples are filled with grief. Sometimes the trip down the mountain can be the hardest part of the journey, especially when we're ill-prepared. But when it comes to the mount of the glory of God, there is nothing we can do to prepare for reaching the summit. God must come down to us in Christ. And as he does so, he reaches out for us. He speaks kindly to us. Get up. Do not be afraid. Let us pray. 
Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your life, for the gift of life in your son. I pray for all who are troubled in spirit by the sharp edges of your word, for all who have fallen to the ground before it, that they would be raised up in Christ and hear the words of him which are for them. Get up and do not be afraid. Amen.